you want to give love to the city, that's a fact. But you're going to need help if you want to make an impact. Well endowed, you want to be well endowed with the Edmonton community. Things really happen when you find that you're well endowed. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Well Endowed Podcast. I'm Andrew Paul. And I'm Lisa Pruden. This podcast is brought to you by Edmonton Community Foundation, and we are a proud affiliate member of the Alberta Podcast Network. Edmonton is full of generous donors who have created endowment funds at ECF. These funds generate money to support charities in Edmonton and beyond. On this podcast, we share stories about how these funds help strengthen our community, because it's good to be well-endowed. On this episode, we're joined by Greg Davis, publisher of Melanistic Magazine. Melanistic is a locally published magazine that explores a multitude of areas related to Black culture in Edmonton. This is just one of many projects that Greg is involved in, and it's a great example of his work as a community builder. Recently, Greg stepped up to co-found Edmonton's Black Community Fund here at Edmonton Community Foundation. The EBCF, as we'll call it, will provide support to Black-led and serving charities and projects in Edmonton for generations to come. And Edmonton Community Foundation has committed $100,000 in matching funds to all donations made to the EBCF in 2021. I sat down with Greg. Yeah, this is uh, Greg Davis. I'm the uh, publisher of Melanistic Magazine here in Edmonton. Also one of the uh, directors for Cary West, which is uh, our largest um, Caribbean arts festival here in Western Canada. And I guess a fairly newcomer to Edmonton. This is my sixth year in the city, so not quite fully Edmontonian yet, but I guess getting there eventually. To learn more about his journey from growing up in Jamaica and taking one of the strangest college courses in Toronto, to cutting his teeth in the publishing industry in Japan and becoming a pillar of strength in his community here in Edmonton. Uh, well, welcome to the show, Greg. Um, I was at an event the other night at the Windspear, and someone asked me what I was working on for the podcast, and I told them that I was going to be chatting with you. And that got me thinking of how I would describe you as a person and kind of what you do. And you gave us a little sample there of just like a few of the things that you're involved with. Uh, but when I think of sort of all the different capacities that I've sort of encountered you in uh, over the last few years here, um, the term community builder or connector uh, sort of comes to my mind as just uh, one of the ways to uh, sort of describe what you do and who you are. Um, and I was just wondering if this has always been sort of the case with you, because um, you seem to have sort of your fingers in a lot of pies. You're like making sure that people are being introduced to each other that might be able to help each other out. Uh, I was just sort of wondering um, how that came to be such a large part of kind of your personality and, and your life. Um, I guess it's probably more my uh, my personality that uh, more than anything. Um, I'm a big believer in working together um, for the for the greater good of of you know whatever the outcome is. Um, you know, in terms of I guess how to to describe you know who I am. I guess the 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 greatest description ever given of me is uh, a Jamaican who found his way in Toronto got lost in Japan and is now in Edmonton. <laughs> uh, that That's wonderful. Uh, and I want to talk to you about sort of all those little chapters um, of yours. Um, so you, you were born in Jamaica. Yeah. 
And um, maybe you could tell us about, uh, like, how, how long uh, did you grow up there for? Uh, and then maybe just walk us through your path to Edmonton and some of those sojourns and pit stops along the way uh, that sort of started building sort of your toolbox uh, that is enabling you to do what you do in Edmonton's community uh, today. Yeah, well, I, I, I grew up in Jamaica. Um, I, uh, my parents... Um, shipped me off to Toronto after high school. Didn't really have much of a choice. Thought it was a joke all the way up to the drive to the airport. <laughs> um, but um, like in Jamaica, um, a lot of, I guess, my personality has been shaped. Um, has to do one, you know, with you know, my parents and, you know, the upbringing they gave me with a lot of things. And, and also the, the high school I went to, um, Meadowbrook, which... Um, when I first started going there, wasn't really considered uh, what you'd call one of the top tier high schools in Jamaica. Um, by the time I graduated, our graduating class was considered the number one high school class in Jamaica. Because um, uh, we had a principal that um, um, uh, she instilled in us this concept of we're as good as any and better than many. I like that a lot. Yeah, and that was our our mantra for the for the high school. You're as good as any, better than many. And a, a, anyone that went to Meadowbrook during that time frame um, has that stamped on their soul. And we live our life <laughs> with, with part of that stamped on our soul. And so, you know, when I moved to Toronto, um, it was a completely different situation. You know, I never been in a situation where you know one being black was considered the minority <laughs> where where people came after you simply because you were black um but they quickly ran into a wall where it was like hey look i don't care who you are i'm here to do my thing <laughs> so whatever <laughs> right um and so um you know graduated um you know seneca college um Kind of had a pit stop at York University, didn't like it much, and then ended up at Ryerson, um, and kind of really found my groove um, there at Ryerson. What were you taking? Um, majored in marketing, uh, communications, and uh, have a minor in business law. You said that you had this principal at your high school in Jamaica that you know left this imprint on you that seemed to sort of arm you with the confidence and self worth to go out and you know. Just do whatever. Do whatever. <laughs> uh, did you have any sort of like mentors or folks during your time in Toronto that maybe also played a, maybe a similar role? Um, I don't know if I'd call them mentors or say, but there are definitely people that poked the bear in terms of teachers. So like um, at Seneca, I had one professor. Um, he had an experimental class called The World of Work. And there was no textbook. There was no actual curriculum that you could I could remember or think of <laughs> for this class. The whole point of this class was to push one your mental capacity to survive the pressures of life. Um, you know, so the midterm I remember the most epic midterm I've ever done. Um, midterm was worth like sixty percent of the final grade. I I got like thirty percent on that test. <laughs> epic. <laughs> epic failure so did about 95 percent of the class because <laughs> the questions were like connect these nine dots with 
one straight line. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it was like the nine dots were in a cube. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> like it was foolishness like that. And so, you know, after that midterm, when everyone got their scores back, a lot of people as they do in college, they, well, I'm not passing this class. So I'm just going to drop it so I can like save my GPA and my credits. Um, I didn't drop it. I was mad. So I was just like, I'm not going to let this guy get the better of me. And after that, he said, okay, for those of you that are still here, you've automatically passed this course. (laughs) Because you've shown that you're not going to quit. You're not going to give up. You're not going to just roll over and show your belly. You're just going to, you're going to keep grinding at it. And that was the whole point (laughs) of of his class. Um, so, you know, like, so like I had people like that along the way that, you know, I wouldn't say there were mentors, but there were more like people that like pushed the envelope. Yeah, for sure. What attracted you to Japan as sort of like your next, you know, I assume that was a very cool chapter, um, that kind of opened the doors, I think eventually to some of the things that you're doing now. It was a very cool chapter. I mean, I'd like to, you know, say it was a story of I woke up one morning and I had this great dream about going to Japan and traveling the world. And that's not it. <laughs> um, essentially, at the time when I graduated Ryerson, I was finishing finishing up as an international student, um, had a, a work permit um, through Immigration Canada. And then 9-11 happened. And what the Canadian government did at the time is they shut down their entire immigration system. <laughs> weren't processing anything. They didn't care if you were here, if you're renewing, if they didn't care, just shutting it down. And they were like, well, you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here <laughs> kind of thing. Um, and so because of that, I, you know, I was like, okay, well, I could go back to Jamaica or I could try my hand at something different. Um, and so then I um, got a job teaching English in Japan. And, you know, that's what, what brought me over there. So I did that for first couple of years and um, got a little bit bored of it because it was just, just no challenge to it for me. Um, and then fell into the magazine world. What was it like, just culture-wise, stepping, you know, out of Toronto and then into, I'm not sure where your airport was, if you flew into, Narita. yeah, Narita, yeah, yeah, just outside of Tokyo there. Did you find any sort of culture shock Oh, that's when I discovered the true meaning of the word illiterate. <laughs> right? Like, like it hits you like, wow, I can't speak the language. I can't read anything people are saying. And I don't understand what you're talking about. <laughs> right? So it's like, like illiteracy was like, okay, this is what that word means. <laughs> yep. <laughs> right. And so, you know, that's one of the first things that hits a lot of people when they, when they land and some people can recover from it and move past it and some people can't get over it. Yeah. So you got off the the plane and did someone from the school meet you at the airport or you grabbed a train? Yeah. My, um, my supervisor, um, Ainsley, she, um, she met me at the airport, her and, uh, Ken, her, um, her kind of assistant. Um, they met me at the airport, took me to the school first, showed me kind of how to get around the train station, uh, dropped me off at my hotel and was like, good luck, Greg. Talk to you guys later. (laughs) (laughs) Who were you working with there? Was it like a good mix of people? Were there many other like black teachers there? At the time, no. 
when I got there in end of 2001, early 2002, uh, <laughs> Martin, who's one of my closest friends there, he jokes all the time. He's like, when I showed up, he was like, man, I didn't know that Geos hired black teachers. Geos was the name of the company I worked for. It was a, it's a vocational English school, so to speak. Um, it was just unheard of uh, for a lot of people at that time to have a black English teacher. So I guess I was an experiment. And apparently there was a bet in head office that I wouldn't last long. <laughs> right. They Someone lost a lot of money. Someone won a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> Did you see any of that money? I didn't see any of that money. <laughs> <laughs> Whoever you are. I want my cut. <laughs> um, but um, it, it turned out that within about six months, the section of Yokohama that I was in was along a train line called the KQ line. Yeah. So it had a lot of major stops going up there. And so my um, school was in Kanazawa Hake. And the next major school further south of that is Yokosuka, where the U.S. Navy base is. So this line basically runs from South Tokyo towards the U.S. Navy base. And within six months, every school along that train line had a black teacher. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because they're like, oh, wait, the U.S. Navy base is there. There's a lot of black people in the U.S. Navy, and there are people that might want to interact with them. So let's just have a black teacher at every school. (laughs) 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 It was one of the funniest (laughs) things ever. So, yeah. Um, so did you meet these other black teachers that were popping up at the, the other schools? Um, I'm just sort of wondering if there was, um, you know, coming from a place like Toronto uh, and then now in here in Edmonton where there's like very strong sort of black communities, um, moving to Japan, it sounds like there, there wasn't uh, to start. Um, did something similar to that start forming or? Yeah, we, we there was kind of like this group that just kind of started to naturally get together of those of us that were like going to stay here for a while particularly and a lot of us are still very very close um even though um most of us don't live in japan anymore but we still communicate and chat and um and so you you got like little groups of you know um black women coming together that were all kind of doing interesting things and so it's like we all kind of knew each other and so, or if we didn't know each other directly, there was like literally five degrees of separation. Right. right. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. What were some of your biggest takeaways uh, from your teaching uh, experience there? One of the big things that jumped out at me because I taught English at a variety of different levels in Japan. So I started off at the vocational school, left that company because they. Um, basically refused to give me a promotion or a raise or anything like that simply on the notion of literally I'm black and I'm novelty and they're just not ready for that stuff. Okay. So I was like, well, I don't need to be here. <laughs> right. Um, so I taught like um, English in junior high school, um, taught high school kids, taught university kids, did corporate lessons. And so one of the things that, you know, uh, for a lot of people that I interacted with, I was literally the first black person they had ever directly spoken to. Um, and a lot of them had preconceived notions of what it, uh, what it was like to be black or what a black person was or what you, you, you enjoyed or 
even the language you spoke. And a lot of those preconceived notions were really rooted in kind of, I, w- I want to say racist ideology, because it's not from them. It was more from after World War II, you had the Americans and the Europeans moving into Japan, basically occupying it, and creating systemic structures um, to allow for Japan to be what it is today, and including things like cultural exchanges and things like teaching English, they brought a lot of that racial bias into teaching English. So you'll meet a lot of people in Japan that they see someone who's black, they automatically think, oh, you must speak Swahili. Hmm. And you could only be from Africa. (laughs) (laughs) Because my English book told me that all black people speak Swahili and are always from Africa. Right, okay. Right, and and like I've seen these English textbooks and I was just like, what in the world? (laughs) (laughs) You know, so like I meet a lot of people. Oh, you're from Jamaica. Cool. What part of Africa is that from? We're not, we're not in Africa, man. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, I've had that conversation with so many people. Like, yeah. So, yeah. So that it's like Southern Africa. Is it near Kenya? Like, no, no. We're we're in we're in the Caribbean. Oh, so that's like near Morocco. Or... <laughs> <laughs> So you so you know that's one of the things that really jumped out to me um, teaching English, and then when I tried to branch out from teaching English, I ran into the stumbling block of, well, let me go into like where all the other expats are, you know, HR and some of these things, uh, only to run into well, it's the old boys club, because now these are the kids of the guys from World War Two and their grandparents, uh, grandkids from those guys that have all these companies. And I remember this one outfit interviewed me like five times. Um, they would call me, hey, saw your resume, resume looks great, come on in for an interview. And um, you go in for, I go in for the interview and I get to like the boss and it was like, not interested. It's an American guy. Um, and then I took a look around their office Literally, it was all white men, blonde hair, blue eyed. Not even women <laughs> were hired there. And I was like, look, don't call me back here for another interview because clearly I'm not for your company. Yeah. Right. And so you, you run into some of that. And then um, when I um, applied to work for Outdoor Japan Magazine, um, Gardner called me in for an interview. Funniest interview I've ever had. I was dressed up, nice little suit and tie, clean shaven, coming into the interview. Gardner comes walking in in a Hawaiian shirt, short sandals, a cup with chewing tobacco. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, I am obviously overdressed for this interview. (laughs) Beyond overdressed. Like, it wasn't even even close. (laughs) Um, and so, yeah, I mean, we, Gardner and I, I can't remember how long we chatted. We were just chatting. And um, he was like, yeah, no, I want you on board. When you, when can you start? Let's just get it going. And so Gardner, you know, was very instrumental on the path that I'm on right now. 
Um, and you know, he was a huge, massive friend, great mentor. Learned a lot from him. Um, and a lot of where I am today started with that conversation with Gardner. Over some chewing tobacco. Over some chewing tobacco. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't chew tobacco anymore, but... <laughs> there was a time. There was a time, yeah. yeah. Um, so did you have an interest in publishing at that point? Uh, what, what was sort of attractive to you to go work for uh, a media company? Um, I didn't really have a, an interest in it. I was still trying to find my way, so to speak. Um I mean, you're in your mid-20s, and you're just kind of like, well, what do I want to do with life still? Um, and I was always naturally a salesperson. Like, I've always, like, everywhere I worked, I did some aspect of sales. And so the job I applied for was advertising sales manager. Um, I spoke enough Japanese that I could do it, but I selling is kind of naturally what I always like to do. Um, and so that's kind of how I fell into that. And then when I started, it wasn't just so much the magazine. It's also the type of media. So because Outdoor Japan was all about travel, and I, I like traveling, like exploring, so then it became a natural fit because now I could sell and talk about stuff that I'm passionate about. So um, and so that's kind of what got me going in the, 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 the magazine world. Magazine publishing is a big part of what you do uh, today. Did you come to Edmonton from Japan? No. After Japan, I moved back to Toronto for, um, I was back in Toronto for about four or five years. Um, and there I was working for Outpost Magazine. So that was another adventure travel lifestyle mag. And the, the, the core difference between the two, starting at the top of you know the publishers there, Outdoor Japan, you know, I learned about my passion, what I like doing. At Outpost, it was like, okay, great. You've got the passion. You've got the lifestyle. Okay, how can we make sure we make money on this so we can live? It's <laughs> <Right. laughs> right. always an important part of the equation. Yeah, how can, we, how can we pay <laughs> for our lifestyle? <laughs> right? And so at Outpost, I learned the, the business side of media. It's like, this is a business. You got to, you got to sell ads you gotta do different things to generate income for this in order for this engine to keep going and for you to be able to to live and have a lifestyle and then um uh, in about 2015 i kind of wanted to i guess move on to like another publication and do some other things and i i saw a posting for where edmonton and so i applied and um rob um called me up because he thought it was a joke at first. He's like, well, why would someone... Okay, you're in Toronto. It's in Edmonton, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so we, were, we got to talking, had a great conversation, and he offered me the opportunity to come out here. And with where Edmonton, it's still travel because it's based on being in hotels and yeah. exploration. But what Rob kind of taught me to kind of bring it all together was... Yeah, you have your passion. Yeah, you're figuring out how to turn this passion into economic well-being, but do lose this. Don't lose that sense of your community while you're doing it. And so that's kind of how the whole thing kind of come together to where I am right now. Tell me about Melanistic. When did it start, and what was sort of the process of starting to get the people that you needed in place to start a magazine? That dynamic of the team to put, you know, 
a quarterly issue of a magazine out is is so important. It's super important, and I I tell everyone never start a magazine. <laughs> I tell people that come to me all the time, hey, let's start a magazine. Don't do it. <laughs> like, and here I am starting one. But uh, how Melanistic got started was um, back in 2018. A friend of mine, um, Lisa Edwards, she um, introduced me to Nigel. Um, we were both at the Friends of Barbados Independence Dinner because Nigel is a staple in the community here. Yeah. This um, is Nigel uh, Williams? Nigel Williams, yeah. Nigel EMC. And so we, we met at the, the thing and we chatted for a bit. And maybe about a month or two later, he called me up because he had a, he's the head of uh, public relations for the uh, National Black Coalition in Canada. And they do an annual book uh for black history month and so he he was put in charge of reimagining what this looks like and he you know he saw some of the stuff i was associated with with wear magazine and so he wanted to kind of figure out how to to take that bit of knowledge and process and use it to reimagine the black history month book so we sat out in the boardroom at wear magazine and we were just chatting and i was kind of walking him through like well this is how i would do a few things. This is what I would do to make money on certain things. Um, you guys are wasting money doing this, 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 and this. <laughs> um, you know, uh, and so he was super excited. I was super excited, and we uh, met up with the president at the time. Had a great conversation. She was like, she liked the new vision and the direction, and was like, hey, let's, let's give it a go. Which I then was like, okay, well, let me step back from Wear Magazine because now I've got this pathway. Unfortunately. The politics of NBCC then kicked in, and that thing was pulled right from under me. Um, so that was gone, and I was pretty upset about it, <laughs> right? And Nigel and I were talking, and Nigel was like, look, let's just do it ourselves, because we already have the blueprint. I already have everything. And the Black Coalition in Canada have no They may have the blueprint, but they have no idea how to execute on it, <laughs> right? And it's my idea anyway, in terms of the blueprint of it. So Nigel told me that, well, he doesn't do anything without his business partner, Nilo. I'm like, cool, bring her in, man. Let's, <laughs> let's see what's going on. And so Nilo and I met and we chatted and it was great. She is a huge part of what we do. She is the heart of Melanistic. Bobby T um, kind of got wind of what we're doing because we were doing another podcast session with him. And he is really into anything with the community um, building and he's like I want to be a part of this so um, he became part of the the founding crew of it then the other piece the final piece that we needed was the editor as a publisher I like to publish I can't edit <laughs> right not my strong point but the editor had to be someone that shared the same vision for what the magazine is about and also someone that is on the same page with me and like we basically should be two hearts beating as one essentially um and so um i'm thinking about who the you know who i know in the community could do it and i had an idea of one person and um my friend sherelle was like have you spoken to tanya um and so then we we met up uh tim hortons it was supposed to be like a 30 minute meeting two hours later we're still there chatting and I was like, yeah, I've got my editor. And um, she has been a rock 
in terms of what we put out there. I can't speak enough of how fantastic she is. Um, and I should also point out before you know jumping on um, another um, piece of the puzzle that everyone noticed right off the bat with the magazine is our design. You know, one of the things that we all as a group were like, well, we need to make sure this magazine looks good because a lot of the other stuff that's out there in the market doesn't look good. And I already had my sense of what I wanted to look like. Um, I had a bunch of different designers that I've worked with that I know could do the job. And, um, you know, I decided to run with Joe because I saw a ton of potential in what she could do. And, um, you know, she has been a, a huge part of what we're, we're, we're doing. She, by chance, is the only person on our team that's not black. <laughs> Decidedly not so. And, um, you know, the whole team um, has really gelled really well over the last couple of years. How do you describe Melanistic and, and what its mission and mandate and vision is? Yeah, I describe it as uh, we're an urban lifestyle magazine. Um, and we take the urban lifestyle story and we tell the story from the perspective of the black community and the black lens. Um, so, you know, we talk about art, talk about history, we talk about travel, health, business. And, you know, we, we, you know, we talk about our, our, our queens and our kings and our kids and anything you will see in like another, any other urban magazine out there, you pick it up, you'll see similar, a similar approach in Melanistic, but uniquely from our perspective. You know, I'm, I'm a big fan of the magazine and always looking forward to the issues when they come out. I liked the uh, outdoor adventure uh, issue and actually talking to Joe uh, about some of the conversations around uh, how that was approached. The fact that there's actually not a lot of like black stock photography of black folks mountain climbing, <laughs> <laughs> like hiking in the woods, you know. Doesn't exist. And I can tell you, I've been doing adventure travel since 2005, 2006. It's not, it's not a thing. <laughs> yeah, and that, that just seems so wild and not something that I had ever personally thought about. Mm-hmm. Um, and Melanistics like pointed that out. I'm like, oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> that is so bizarre and also not cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it permeates in every aspect of that industry. Mm-hmm. So like if you look at just even the, from a brand perspective of like North Face and OR and you know, um, uh, Jetboil and Patagonia and Columbia and all these guys, if you look at the creative and how they present the brand, it's very much just focused on the white community. They don't even try to talk about the Asian community unless unless you're like in, say, Japan or China and it's Patagonia, Japan. They, they know they have to represent <laughs> right, their culture, but they still put in, you know, that white lens <laughs> in it, right? You know, they, but they don't even try to represent, you know, South America or India or, like, it's just it's just the way the industry is, <laughs> right? And even when you look at even just, like, the color schemes and how things are designed, um, they're very much designed and and set to fit a particular look and feel and and personality type and then also historically when you go go way back to the depths of it all um the black community were never encouraged to travel right like as a slave you couldn't just leave the plantation you had to have a permit from your owner just to go down the road (laughs) right um and so you know, starting from there, you know, a lot of people in the black community have always felt they weren't welcomed. They didn't have access 
to exploring and seeing some of these things. Yeah, uh, take the Green Book for example. Right? Ex- exactly. So, you know, exactly. Case in point of that. Yeah, you yeah. had to stay at the hotel. That's where you could stay, <laughs> right? Um, and so you know, because of that, that's why you have a situation now where, if you want to find pictures of you know people in the black community hiking, snowboarding, paddleboarding, surfing, and all that, it's hard to find. Because, you know, it's not something that was encouraged for hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, if you think about it, um, up until maybe 50 years ago, uh, if you're a black, you weren't allowed to swim in a public pool. Mm-hmm. You know, and so when people say, well, why can't people in the black community swim? Because we weren't allowed to go in the water. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Um, and so, like, you know, I, I don't know if you remember, was it the last, not the last Olympics, the Olympics before. Um there was a big controversy around the swimming um, portion of it where I can't remember her name, but she was the first black um, American Olympian to gold medal in any swimming event. And during the, um, when they have the ceremony of the medals and the anthems and all that, all the American feats cut away to a completely different, unrelated thing that didn't have any American participation in it, and they did now show her award ceremony on TV. What? It's deep. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, like deep. It's just like, why would you represent that country after that? Good question. <laughs> Good question. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, 50 years ago, I wouldn't. my parents and my grandparents weren't allowed to swim. Now I'm an Olympic champion. And you won't even acknowledge my presence. Well, uh, so you're, so Melanistic is coming in to, you know, work on this yeah. <laughs> in a big way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and when you say um, it's looking at, you know, urban lifestyle uh, through the black community lens, I think a lot of times, and we've chatted about this a little bit before, is that uh, the black community kind of gets, and black folks get lumped into like community singular you know this is the black scene this is the black community this is black culture when the reality is that it's such a diverse mix of people and i was wondering if you could kind of maybe uh, give us a little bit of uh, kind of the lay of the land of like edmonton's black communities when that catch-all term gets used what, what does that actually mean in the context of edmonton um i think just from my my kind of newbie lens in edmonton it's it's really all, everyone's kind of all lumped together traditionally by Edmonton, not just from the residents, but just even the systemic nature of how the cities run. And I think in recent years, people have been forced in a lot of cases to realize that when you're talking about the the black community, it's not one group of people. <laughs> you know, there are black folk from so many different countries and cultures that speak so many different languages that have different upbringings that uh, from cuisine to music to fashion that are all beautiful and all unique. And so a lot of people are starting to learn that a classic example is Carrie West. Do you talk to, you know, sometimes people in city administration or whatever and Oh yeah, that's just the black event for Edmonton. It's like, wait, no, hold time on a second. <laughs> okay, we do not speak for <laughs> the black community. We speak for a very small. <laughs> and then even so, when you're talking about the Caribbean, um, the Caribbean is not just black people. There's 
they're Asians, they're East, Southeast, and you know, Indians. Um, you know, they're Germans, they're Dutch. There's like a lot of people from a lot of different backgrounds in the Caribbean. Um, you know, so it, it's fighting a lot of that stigma where it's like, oh, you guys are from Africa, so you're all the same, right? No, we're, we're not. <laughs> not even close. Uh, so the people in Edmonton are, are, you know, slowly catching on to that concept, and a lot of people are embracing that that diversity that underground does exist in Edmonton that a lot of people didn't really know. Yep. Yeah. Well, man, you tell a Scottish person that they're English and see how oh. well that goes, right? It's like <sighs> good luck, man. You know, like, <laughs> it's like, it's the, <laughs> That's generational warfare. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, try and understand that, you know. Like, you know, let's just say um, just a popular country off the top of my head, like Nigeria, right? There are so many different subcultural groups in that one country alone. You can't just say, oh, all Nigeria. No. <laughs> <not>, no. <laughs> the, the food's different, <laughs> depending on where you are. <laughs> the language is different, depending on where you are. <laughs> like, you know, so, you know, those are things that, um, you know, and even as, like, say, you know, for me being from the Caribbean, I'm still learning a lot of that as well. Because growing up in, in Jamaica and then even being educated in Toronto and all that, the system is set up to make sure you don't learn some of those things. Um, because the idea is to keep you separated and disconnected. You know, so a lot of times, you know, we're fed growing up that, oh, well, you know, as Jamaicans, we're Jamaican. We don't, we don't really mess around with Africans. Don't call us Africans or we'll go to war with you on that. Um, but that's just part of that, you know, intentional um, quote-unquote knowledge that they try to pass on to you to keep communities divided and separated and not wanting to work together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the oldest colonialism... Oh, the tricks of the trade, right? Oh, you know, like, you know, one of my friends says the greatest thing the British ever figured out was how to do social engineering. They were masters of it. <laughs> well, and because of these systemic systems that are in place that are set up to, you know, do things, terrible things. And please correct me if I'm wrong. It's also, uh, I think, in in some ways forced uh, a lot of these uh, very diverse black communities to come together in solidarity in a lot of respects. And I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about the Empton Black Communities Fund. And I don't know if it's correct to say that this might be one of those instances where it's a lot of different folks coming together to start something that is going to benefit kind of a wide range of people in the diverse black community that that is in Edmonton. Yeah, uh, I, is that an accurate? Yeah, I think it's it's fair to it's a fair assessment of the, what the the idea is. You know, you when you look at different cultural groups on a, on a general scale, they all tend to try and move together. Right? So if you look at say just say China, for example. Well, China is incredibly diverse. Right? <laughs> incredibly like like it's insane right but the chinese community somehow finds a way to move together in a way um you look at the muslim community i mean my my brain can't wrap around the the levels of diversity <laughs> within that i mean it, it's it would it takes you a lifetime to understand the different levels and you know with that but they still somehow find a way to move together the black community because you know, we've been taught for years to be against each other, have never really been able to pull together to bring all those 
diverse voices and ideas together and move in a direction. Still keeping our identity and our uniqueness, but still working together to achieve a certain goal. And so the the um, the Edmonton Black Community Fund is meant to to continue that process of growth within the community you know you we have a there's a council that has kind of come together to kind of put together the ideas of how to start this this particular fund and it's representative of a wide cross-section of the black community from age to sex to country of origin to subcultures you name it it's, it's represented and it still doesn't fully represent everyone but over time it will you know have interchanging parts that will get different voices and different bits of representation um, but the, the whole idea is to create this mechanism that allows for the community to build itself as a group but still maintain its uniqueness in voices yeah. So what are you hoping that the EBCF achieves? Uh, maybe you can tell us just a little bit about uh, the goal of it and what you sort of see the maybe next few years uh, for the fund looking like. Hopefully it becomes a um, just one of the sources of growth for work within the community. The whole idea is to give Black-led organizations that are very much on the grassroots level that are actually doing work, <laughs> right? Right. There's a lot of them that are out there that are not actually <laughs> doing work that are not actually black led either. But that's a topic for another day, <laughs> right? Um, but that are out there that are actually doing work in their community to make their community better and to give them access to the the tools they need, not just financial but to grow it in a way that they can learn how to make their organizations and their work sustainable over a long term. Because mm -hmm. sustainability and governance is a very big challenge for a lot of community groups. Oh, uh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, if there's a way for this fund to help build that capacity in terms of you know, financial capacity, governance capacity, what does sustainability look like for you? How do we make sure that 10 years from now, your work as an organization is still going on? And not just going on as it is today, but improving and getting to different levels. That is a challenge for uh, so many organizations, even organizations that time, you know, go through that initial process of getting their charitable status and then it's like maintaining that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's like you know, accountants are important people. Yes, <laughs> yes. You know, shout out to all of the admin folk in our lives. Uh, <laughs> you really do make the world go round. That's that, no, no lie, no lower, no word of a lie. Yes. <laughs> So, Empty Community Foundation has provided $100,000 in matching funding to the EBCF, uh, which is open for donations to anybody who would like to make them. And those dollars will be matched one for one. And as soon as the uh, fund gets to $10,000, it can begin providing grants uh, to these organizations. So, we're just giving a little shout out that we're really excited to get to that 10 grand. Yeah, and the, 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 the great thing is, is, this is a fund that, will become self-sustaining that the black community can access to get you know different work and different projects you know done and um, it's great that the the ecf has come to the table and stepped up and said hey we don't just want to do a one-time anti-racism grant of this just this year <laughs> you know we want to do something that is going to be here for a long time that's going to have a real impact over many, many years and generations to come. And so that's 
one of the things that separates this particular program from a lot of the other things that are kind of thrown out there, <laughs> you know, you know, where it's like, oh, man, um, we really need to just, this is do a one-time thing, call it a day, we'll done our due diligence, and, and that's not what this is. This is something that's meant to, the you know, at $10,000, the granting process then kind of kicks in. But the whole idea is next year, we want the pool to be not 10 grand, but double, triple that. So then we can help more people and, you know, give access to more organizations that are, that are doing good work. Well, I feel like I've been keeping you a little longer than uh, we had expected, but I do have one more thing I want to talk to you about. And this is just going back to sort of the diversity within Edmonton's black community uh, again. And that has to do with a very tasty beverage called Sorrel. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> and I believe it was the winter 2020 issue of Melanistic yes. uh, that you ran a story and a recipe yep. about Sorrel. Mm -hmm. And I, I noticed that you, you printed the Jamaican version. Yes. But that's not the only version that's out there. And apparently there are some pretty strong opinions out there. It's a very divisive topic. Uh, <laughs> it is a topic that will lead to like fights over the dinner table and friends will end friendships. <laughs> Grandparents will get involved. <laughs> it, right. it, it, so what can be uh, defined as sorrel, the beverage? Um, so sorrel is essentially flour from the hibiscus. And it's the drink... A lot of people tell you the the origins of of the drink and where it's originated from. It's, it's definitely African in origin, no doubt about that. Anyone that disputes that, I'm like, well, uh, go back through culinary history, <laughs> right? But every country um, and subculture has developed different ways of brewing it and different ways of enjoying it. And so, like in a lot of African countries that I've seen, it's more of a tea in terms of how they present it in the Caribbean. It's spiced up, but different countries take a different twist on what does it mean to actually put spice in it, you know. So in Jamaica, we like ginger. In Trinidad, not so much, <laughs> right? Um, and so um, there's, you know, and so just in that one drink alone, you can see the diversity just in it. You know, like I honestly didn't know that sorrel was consumed in Africa till last year. When we were going back and forth and just having a just a fun time with it, and um, we were at Nilo's shop, and um, one of her friends was there. She was from Nigeria, and she's like, "Oh, can I join the Sorrel Challenge too?" And we all kind of turned and looked, like, "What do you know about Sorrel?" <laughs> <laughs> so we're like, "Oh, you guys have it there too." So then I did a bit of digging. I'm like, "Okay." This thing spans the globe. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so is this like all year long kind of kind of beverage? Is it like a holiday beverage? Um, different countries have different approaches. You can have it all year long, but in the Caribbean, it is very much considered a drink for Christmas time. Yeah. So Chris, like around now is when um, you'll see people starting to brew batches of it and um, enjoying it for, for, for Christmas and into the New Year's holiday. Yeah. It's a very festive. Very much. It's very much a, 
you know, when you smell it, you're like, oh, Christmas is just around the corner. All right. All right. Uh, perfect. Well, uh, we'll throw a link to the recipe from that uh, issue uh, in our show notes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure Nigel will be chiming in with a few comments on that. <laughs> well, and please, uh, if you have your own sorrel recipes out there or own thoughts, we would love to hear them for sure. Well, um, I'll just say this. If there's anyone out there that feels are up to the challenge... I mean, Melanistic is here waiting. We've got, you know, a couple of, you know, chefs here that will throw it down. If you think you've got the one, bring it. <laughs> All right. Okay, so Christmas just got really interesting this year. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say that if there's no ginger in the sorrel, it is hibiscus tea. Just putting that out there. <laughs> <laughs> I am going to stay out of this. Uh, <laughs> Well, thank you so much for uh, your time today, Greg, and chatting uh, with us about your story, about Melanistic, and about the uh, newly emerging EBCF. Yeah, no worries at all. Thanks for, for having me. And, and um, hopefully everyone um, can um, take a look at what we're trying to put together for the, the Edmonton Black Community Fund. And um, if there's a way for you to get involved... Um, it doesn't have to be monetary in terms of donations. If you wanted to volunteer and be on the committee that's, um, you know, in charge of like evaluating grants or doing any of this, these stuff in the background, um, we're happy to, to have you on board. The more voices we have, the better we can make the program and the more organizations and community members we can assist. Perfect. Thanks so much, Greg. Thank you. Thanks to Greg Davis for sharing his time with us. We can't wait to sip some sorrel this holiday season. And if you have opinions on the best sorrel recipe, let us know. As we mentioned, all donations made to Edmonton's Black Community Fund will be matched dollar for dollar until December 31st, 2021. This is a wonderful way to help provide long-term support to Black-led and serving organizations and projects in Edmonton. Plus, you'll get a tax receipt, which is perfect as we begin to enter the end-of-year giving season. You can find links to the EBCF along with all of Greg's other amazing projects in our show notes. And we'll also have links to our upcoming granting deadlines. Be sure to check those out to see if you or someone you know could be eligible for funding. Well, that brings us to the end of the show. Thanks so much for sharing your time with us. No, really. Thank you. If you enjoyed the show, share it with all the people you know. And if you have time, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Those reviews help new listeners find our show. You can also find us on Facebook, where you can share your thoughts and see some pictures. Thanks again for tuning in. We've been your hosts, Andrew Paul. And Lisa Pruden. Until, Until next, next time. time. <laughs> the Well Endowed Podcast is produced by Edmonton Community Foundation. And is an affiliate member of the Alberta Podcast Network. The show is edited by Lisa Pruden. You can visit our website at thewellendowedpodcast.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes. And follow us on Twitter at the ECF. Our theme music is by Octavo Productions. And as always, don't forget to visit Edmonton Community Foundation at ecfoundation.org. Mm-hmm.